0: Would be absolutely, totally, and in all other
1: ways inconceivable. Okay, guys, welcome back to this week's uh, Gramerica show. Uh, we're going to have Thomas Fusco interview on a little later. Uh, but first, uh, and of course, we got uh, RPJ with us for, for tonight's intro. Uh, but first, as always, is Graham. How's it going, Graham?
2: Hey, Darren. Not too bad. How are you doing?
1: Good. Getting <laughs> ready for a long weekend to houseboating.
2: Nice. Should be a shit show, eh?
1: Yeah. My buddy's bachelor party out on the shoe shop on a houseboat. Nice. 14 of us on a 20-man boat with a water slide and a hot tub.
2: <laughs> and a ping pong beer table. Or yeah, beer, a beer pong, pong table. Table, yeah. beer pong table. Beer pong table. So
1: coming out of retirement for the weekend. Uh, so how's it going tonight, Red? Thanks for uh, coming on with us.
3: Hey cubole. That's the Mexican version of WhatsApp.
1: Yeah,
2: what what is it again? Cubo. Cubo. Cubo.
3: Yeah. How do how oh yeah? It's like Q U I B O U. Like qué hubo? Okay. But que, you can. Yeah, qué hubo? Like WhatsApp? Qué pasa? Ah uh-huh, okay. I wanna. I wanna but keep... then
2: you
3: can alter it and it's one cubo or cubole.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> I need to give you some lessons. So how have you been? Uh, good, good. I mean, August has not been a kind year with me, a kind month with me, but I'm I'm hanging in there.
1: Is uh too hot or what's uh,
3: just... No, no. W- uh, work work issues and family issues. Uh, a, a member of my family passed away.
1: Oh, sorry That's to hear too that. bad. We're sorry to hear that.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. It's it's always hard, you know, when someone close to you uh, ceases to 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 be here, and to think that you are never going to see him again.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that work and that family getting in the way of all that fun.
3: Yeah, exactly. All all work and no fun makes RPG a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So uh, what's, new, uh, what's new in your world of Fortiana for us?
3: Well, there's been a couple of interesting ideas ranging from the completely ridiculous to the more serious. I don't know if you guys want to start on the lighter side of things. Yeah, maybe. Okay, so one of the most uh, discussed news on the web, I mean, even in Mexico we're talking about it is the headline of this article Zoo in China swaps lion for dog, hopes no one notices. <laughs> I mean, how crazy is that that a zoo in China tried to convince the visitors that, in, that the uh, um, Tibetan mastiff was an African lion? <laughs> Unfortunately, the lion started barking, and people say, wait a minute. I mean, I think I just seem to remember that lions roar, roar instead of bark.
1: Yeah, I guess that would be common knowledge in China. Like, I get, it, it's tough to say. I don't know if you China's like mostly little small villages and shit, isn't it?
3: Maybe it might but be able but to fool that. a few people.
2: No, there's like I mean, so many cities over a million people. It's I mean, crazy.
3: Two two hundred years ago, maybe you could have pulled away that scam. But nowadays, I mean,
1: yeah, it's tough. It, I mean, we've got we've got a. Bunch of downloads in China, so obviously,
3: I yeah, mean, exactly. It's an insult to their intelligence.
1: Yeah, I didn't mean it like that.
3: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but it's interesting how people were saying that. Okay, that the Chinese knockoffs are not only now uh, re- related to cheap pirate uh, children movies, but now they go and expanded to zoo attractions.
2: Yeah, they do. They have 100 cities with over a million people. Imagine that. 100 cities yeah. the size of Calgary. Over, well, that's over a lot the
1: size of, of That's Calgary. a lot of lions. So, yeah. I can see. They're just trying to <laughs> think of the money you save getting dogs instead of lions. That's a lot of money.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to I,
1: side with the zoo on this
3: one. Really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that seems did, crazy. They could have
2: at least put like a, a fake uh, lion head on, on it or something.
3: Did you guys see that <laughs> movie Pierce Creatures? No, we, I didn't. No. Uh, you, I, I'm, I'm surprised you say that because you are such a Monty Python fan.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay.
3: It was with John Cleese. Okay. And Kevin Klein.
2: Oh.
3: And, Jenny, and Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's a, a very, a very funny movie. It's about a, 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 corp, a, a multinational corp, uh, corporation taking over a small town zoo. And they want to make it profitable, and then comes Kevin Klein with all these crazy ideas. They put he puts an, a, an ad on the, the Bengal tiger saying "absolute fears because he wants to make like a absolute vodka campaign, <laughs> and he puts an animatronic panda instead of a real one. And The moment I saw that these news about the the African lion that was a Tibetan Mastiff and said man maybe maybe that character went down to China and he's <laughs> from that too, you know this.
1: I've never lion. seen that either. But I'm not a huge Monty Python fan either. I don't I don't get it. Is that like I, a
3: sequel to a fish called Wanda? It's kind of a sequel the to the fish called that? Wanda That's because it's, it's the same cast.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I just seen Oblivion finally. It fucking it was good. I liked it a lot more than I expected to.
3: Mm, it's I, one those, see-
1: I think I got to watch it again almost because it's like there's a couple different levels of plot going on there.
3: I saw that Elysium got a lot of uh, bad reviews. Huh. Which kind of surprised me because I have a lot of respect for Neil Blockhampton.
1: Yeah, usually I'm not a big Tom Cruise fan, but I haven't seen Elysium yet. Is that out in theaters now?
3: Uh, At least in the United States it it is. Hmm.
1: I wonder, I'm going to check if it's here. Mm. If it's anything like uh, the Bourne series, then I'll be all over it.
3: I I think it's going to be more like District 9. Yeah. Yeah, more of a a sci-fi dystopia.
2: I think it looks really good so far. Can't wait to see that.
1: We'll see. Yeah. It could easily flop.
3: Yeah, but I don't know. Okay, so talking about uh, cute furry creatures, <laughs> <laughs> all the internet was all caught up with a new uh, zoological find that apparently in Ecuador, I think it's Ecuador, they found a new mammal called Olinguito.
1: Yeah, carnivore, right?
3: Yeah, kind of related really? to raccoons. Really? Which, yeah.
1: Yeah, I heard it described as like a teddy bear crossed with something.
3: Oh, man, well, you you look, uh, try to uh, Google it up, and <laughs> this thing is cute as hell. I mean, really? I, yeah, I want three of them. Like those
2: little look- gremlins, like that gremlin movie from the 80s?
3: No, it looks more like a Pokemon or something. <laughs> it has... Fierce looking claws On those little paws Of his his, But it's a pretty adorable animal (laughs)
1: Looks like a little weasel Or something even Like a little cuddly weasel
3: Yeah but it's interesting how uh, both the cryptozoologist fans and the skeptics fans uh, try to take this news to to support their cause. You know, cryptozoologists will go and say, oh, see, we have found this new uh, mammal uh, in in uh, the American continent, that which means that we still have a lot of species to discover. Yeah. And, No, Of course, that would include something like Bigfoot or uh, or the... Or your friend, the Chucacabra. Exactly. You know, that motherfucker. (laughs) Then the skeptics say, look, this is nothing like the Sasquatch because this was done with proper uh, scientific procedures and... It's now a recognized species which is going to be included in the proper taxonomical uh,
1: categories.
3: Exactly. Did they kill one? I hope not. I don't think so.
1: So just a picture was enough?
3: Uh, They they did some thorough investigation and DNA testing according to these Washington Post articles. So maybe... They collected some DNA material. I don't know from maybe from scat or blood. I hope they, I really hope they didn't have to kill one of these little critters.
2: I heard maybe, it, maybe it's a hoax.
3: I heard it was a plant oh. from a
2: Chinese zookeeper.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to say this is kind of a, a Pikachu. <laughs>
1: it is pretty cute, but it's got that look to it that it could like it could fuck you up if it wanted to.
3: It's, yeah, it's kind yeah. of
1: how big is it? It's kind of hard to get scale in this picture.
3: I think it's as big as a house cat.
1: Hmm. A crazy
2: so, house cat.
3: Right? So, um, did they say what it's? Speaking uh, of
1: house cats, did you hear about those that? Uh, that oh yeah, Caleb was talking about on the Grailian. Yes, house, this... that's, see, that's what I'm always telling Graham. If he dies, his fucking cattle eat him.
3: The crazy cat lady who got eaten and gnawed by their cat by her cats because. My... They were starving. Yeah, that's crazy. See, yeah, I, I
1: always say that my dog would die beside me on the floor.
3: <laughs> but... Yeah, dogs, dogs are loyal like that, you know. Did you see that movie uh, with, uh, what's the name of this guy? Uh, Hashi. It's, it's based on a real uh, story of a dog who will always wait on, on its owner on the train station. Until mm-hmm. one day, the, the owner dies of a heart attack, and the dog kept waiting at the station for years and years. Aww. Yeah, man, you see the, the movie, and it, it, it breaks your heart, if especially if you're a dog lover yeah. like me.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dog person, too, for sure.
2: I'm Definitely. a cat person.
1: You know your cat will eat you.
2: I found my cat. It's
1: probably plotting your demise right now. My
2: cat jumped or fell off the balcony rail last night. I woke up at 1 o'clock to this cat fight, and I thought, where's Zeus? I was looking for my cat, and I look, and he's standing outside whoa, 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 in the parking whoa. lot. Your cat is named Zeus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, my gosh. Nice. Uh,
2: and he, and I had to go let him in. Like, he fell or something, and he, I think he got in a little scrap, and I had to – like, he's an indoor cat, but he he sometimes he falls off the balcony rail, so –
3: from Mount Olympus. Yeah, I know.
2: <laughs> you should
1: chicken wire that
2: shit. I did, I did. But he goes on top and then he falls off. So.
3: Chicken wire it right in.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh boy. So, hey, did they find out where this creature evolved from? <sighs> like, I wonder what Thomas Fusco would say about that. Like, what well, some random variation? Super like geometry, you, kind of thing.
3: It's it's related to raccoons, and here in Mexico we have an animal called a uh, coati. I don't know if you want to Google it up. And it's kind of like a cross between a raccoon and a monkey, but it has a very long snout. Hmm. And I kind of suspect that uh, the coati and this olinguito are related.
2: I could Google it, but I couldn't even begin to try and spell that. <laughs> it looks like it's, a cat look, mouse C- almost. C- cat C- rat.
3: O- C- o- a- T-I.
2: Okay. Oh. Cote. Oh, yeah. Huh. Looks like an aardvark kind of.
3: Yeah, but this, these guys uh, live on trees like the old here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Huh. Look. And
1: at they're here.
3: carnivores, too.
1: Yeah. I think that's what the, the big thing was, too, right? It's the first new carnivore they found in, like, a long time.
3: Yeah, that's what they are making all the fuss about, but it's also, its more like an omnivore but, because it, here it says it dines on fruits such as figs, but also enjoy, enjoys insects and plant nectar.
2: Hmm.
3: But they—they're saying that these these, these animals belongs to the taxonomic order of Carnivora. Uh, yeah, I don't so, even know
1: if I count insects as carnivore as, material. Well, then what a frog's a con- carnivore
3: yeah definitely man hmm.
1: i seen actually seen my buddy used to have this crazy little fucking frog that would just like you'd like dangle its food in front of it and would just like with some like tweezers oh, and it would man. like jump up and latch on it was fucking scary
3: yeah. <laughs> and then you will your friend would lick its head to get high or what
1: <laughs> <laughs> no it wasn't one of them oh. i i actually asked though
2: you <laughs> wanted to try. <laughs> Speaking of getting high,
3: right? Uh, so ba- back in at uh, the daily. King of
1: segways.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, the king of segways. <laughs> I decided to write something about Dr. Sanjay Gupta's new documentary, Weed. It Is... was pretty interesting. I highly recommend it.
1: Where did you find it?
3: Well, uh, there's a link to it at the Daily Grail. Okay. And this is what I wrote at the beginning. For over 40 years, marijuana has been labeled a Schedule I substance, meaning it has no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, end quotes. Because of this, millions of dollars have been wasted and countless lives have been lost. In trying to keep the public away from this allegedly dangerous drug but is the daa's position on cannabis based on sound medical information or could the opposite be in fact true and marijuana has a great potential in the treatment of severe health issues for which modern medicine has no viable treatments to offer and if marijuana has the potential for abuse what's the real danger to develop an addiction so I th- that's what Dr. Sanjay Gupta tried to answer in this documentary, and he shows the story of a little five-year-old girl called Charlotte Piki, who had these terrible problems of seizures uh, of epilepsy, and uh, her parents were completely distraught and desperate because there was no viable uh, standard medical procedure to try to alleviate the the. the this problem with her uh, with her child and they they decided to use uh to give her cannabis as the last last uh, option but the cannabis uh, eventually uh, dramatically dramatically improved her condition i mean it's unbelievable you see the footage of the girl suffering seizures not able to speak And then you see how she's uh, developing right now. He's happy. She's happy. She's talking. She is a a normal, regular child. All thanks to cannabis.
1: Yeah, and then is it that study too that was... Is that the same study that was saying that even small doses of cannabis on a regular basis can almost work to prevent cancer?
3: They also... uh, Talked about it, but only very slightly. You know, at the end, they uh, he, he showed that in, in Israel. Israel, I was very amazed to to learn that Israel is like a pioneer in the study of uh, cannabis and its medical benefits. And uh, they showed this uh, state-run uh, hospital where elderly people are, are given. Cannabis to treat their ailments from for for pain or even for uh, also the treatments of uh, dementia. Hmm. So it was really it was fascinating. Oh, obviously, uh, he it wasn't a full endorsement of uh, of ganja, you know. Yeah. Like the guy as a responsible doctor showed that. Uh, children uh, under 16 should never be uh, taking uh, cannabis because uh, young developing brains are more susceptible to to, to have some uh, lasting damages yeah, yeah. you know or, or or cause or developing an addiction but man the, the same could be said of any kind of drugs you know like i wrote wrote here at the daily grail any teenager in America can go to the next to the nearest Starbucks and offer a big ass a glass of, of of coffee, which is a drug, and yeah, only think... the more yeah, of course, and only the Mormons will object to it.
2: I've been uh, I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. Actually, the whole the whole drug thing. I mean, we want to get um, we want to have a show on kind of like the war against drugs. Maybe have that guy uh, Kevin Booth on, who's this. Uh, Advocate of the cannabis oil mm-hmm. um, being kind of like a, a bit of a cure all. I think. Yeah, that's a
1: that's a that's a big thing for me too. Yeah, that's uh, definitely an angle because I've seen firsthand with uh, with a few people how much it's helped them get through certain things.
2: And I want to make it clear too that we don't necessarily advocate or we don't advocate drug use or drinking or anything like that. I mean, I uh, personally I don't do either anymore but um mm. but i like what graham hancock says that we should have the sovereignty over our own consciousness right as long as we're not harming somebody else so you know people want to want to divulge then they can go ahead
3: yeah exactly i i like i stated on, on uh, at the telegram i do not condone i'm not not a big fan of the recreation of, the use of illegal drugs yeah but at the same time uh, trying to uh, condemn or demonize a goddamn plant is just ludicrous yeah. Yeah. because in the at the end of things you can become addicted to any sort of things you know you can become addicted to the internet you can become addicted to video games you can become addicted to to porn even and just because one or five or ten people uh, get an addiction doesn't mean you have to write to to prohibit to the rest of the population
2: yeah yeah, yeah
1: I, don't, I don't personally consider pot a drug anymore. It, I guess it's, it helps because in Canada, like at least in our part of Canada, it's come to the point now that nobody really gives a shit anymore, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I'm never worried about getting arrested for pot.
2: No, you, you go to Vancouver I mean? and there's events and rallies all the time. People are smoking pot out in the open. And it's, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I like I'd take pot over booze any day of the week, as in society and personally.
3: Yeah, yeah and it's and it's probably much less damaging to your yeah. health. And because some... they, Go... they show that, the, uh, sorry, that uh, cannabis has a nine percent chance of creating an addiction, whereas alcohol has a fifteen percent chance. Fifteen. Yes, fifteen. Yeah.
2: Hmm. Um. Something's happening down south there too, in between Mexico and Canada. I was listening to No Agenda today and, and uh Curry and Dvorak were talking about um there was that meeting with all the lawyers and uh who's that uh the head lawyer of Help Me Out here. <laughs> now I'm gonna get into this. I don't know. No. Oh, <laughs> um I, I had it here and now I can't find it. Um anyways, they're talking about loosening up some of the laws or or reworking the legal system so that uh this uh minimum minimum uh sentencing kind of goes away and this type of thing. So I mean and then this Sanjay Gupta thing at the same time. So something's going on, they're loosening things up for some reason.
1: Yeah, cause yeah, it's about time to quit pissing money into their war on drugs.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, there's these uh country in South America, Uruguay, where they are uh, very aggressively moving forward to completely uh, legalizing not only the consumption and perception of marijuana, but also the uh, the cultivation of it.
2: Yeah, it was Eric, just, Eric Holder in that San Francisco thing where uh, Hillary Clinton got an award and they were talking about this.
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting to note that in Uruguay, the president of Uruguay is a, a former <laughs> guerrilla fighter. In and where? A, in, in Uruguay, the, the the country where they are legalizing marijuana. Huh. The president is an atheist. <laughs> so that's 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 interesting to note.
1: Yeah, that's the that's what, you gotta have the cultivation if you're gonna legalize it because like fucking who doesn't want to just grow your own shit at home in your backyard?
3: You know? What yeah, I mean? exactly. Yeah, exactly.
2: And there's a whole conspiracy along with that that would be fun to get into a little bit, like the the way uh, Afghanistan's poppy growth increased mm. by 90% or something like that since they they took over after the war. Really? That's the first time I heard that. Really? Show. Oh, it's, it's out there now. It's crazy. I'm going to look into that.
3: Yeah. yeah thanks to uh, Gupta's documentary, I managed to learn a lot of things about uh, marijuana. For example, the components of marijuana, uh, the, there is the thc which is the co- thing that actually gets you high and um, what what's interesting is that they show that in 1971 the average uh, marijuana plant had like 1% of thc whereas now the the the, the, strand, the strands that are being uh, grown obviously illegally are they have a 13% Content of THC, so that means that the because it's an illegal drug and because it's being grown to get people high, instead of used uh, being used uh, for medical purposes, uh, the, the growers are trying to increase and boost the content of THC, making marijuana, uh, well, I don't know, more more capable of inducing an addiction. Mm, so if it were a legal drug I'm sure that it it would have been kept uh, a low a lower level of THC
1: yeah uh, well I think that kind of would have come with the times anyway if people were growing it I mean I think there's always kind of been that aspect to it over the Mm. years Mm. and I think as technology grew like I think pot getting better was just kind of it kind of goes along the same lines as everything. You know what I mean? Every, everything's gotten better as we've as we've evolved. You know, over the last couple of hundred years, we've gotten gotten you know a hundred times better at doing almost everything. Why wouldn't Why wouldn't and pop be one of them?
3: Yeah, like the the cannabis that the the parents of Charlotte uh, gave to her, they tried to find the strain that had the lowest content of THC and the highest content of the other component, uh, which I can't remember how it's called, <laughs> but because obviously they didn't want their kids to get stoned. They wanted to give her uh, the cannabis uh, because of its medical properties,
4: mm-hmm.
3: no? Unfortunately, they managed to find some uh, Colorado, Colorado growers who had this very rare form, a strand of uh, cannabis which is now called a uh, Charlotte's Web, in honor of this of this little kid, who huh. became the, the the youngest user of medical marijuana in the state of Colorado. Huh. So it's, I, I, I really uh, to everyone to everyone listening to to this I really recommend you 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 get a chance to watch this documentary uh, to inform yourself. Like we like we stated earlier, this is not an endorsement to one of that. We are not intending you to go and uh, shut down the computer and try to find the 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 nearest pot dealer. But uh, the thing is that for forty plus years, this this plant has been labeled as a very dangerous toxic toxic substance by the by the authorities and. What is being shown by these documentaries and and, and other investigators is that this is not the case.
1: I must say is that I'm definitely noticing even in the last, like, not even a decade, in the last five years, a huge change. Like, the the paradigm is shifting, like, at a rapid rapid point, it seems, this time. Like, it's like almost even if you search, if you start typing cannabis into Google, it's automatically coming up with a bunch of different cancer sites, you know what I mean? And people are openly discussing it. Like, even myself, I've, whenever... Whenever I've come across instances in my life where people have mentioned that they've got a loved one that has cancer or, or something like that. And I always make a point to mention, you know, don't fucking write off cannabis, man. It's doing amazing things. Look into this cannabis oil, you know. Do some research because you're, you could be missing out on, on a, a big thing.
3: Yeah, but on the other hand, there are still people whose lives were completely destroyed because police, the police officers found found them with a with a small bag of grass in their hands.
1: Yeah. See, in in Canada, we don't really you don't we don't really have that's, that that as a problem so much because like right now, I think if you get caught with uh, anything under an ounce, you're getting like a hundred twenty five dollar fine or something like that.
3: Yeah, but well, obviously, the reason I'm so adamant of this topic is because you know, on the last. Uh, five to eight years here uh, my country mexico has been completely ravaged by this uh, pointless war on drugs
1: yeah yeah i never even thought of that like you must take it from a whole new perspective because like that's where the war zone is for for their war
3: exactly you know i mean in in the united states and canada is uh it's a health issue but here is a life and death issue
2: yeah wow is it still a, a problem, like all the marijuana getting uh, exported south and then the cocaine and all the harder drugs coming up north?
3: It's a very peculiar situation. I mean, apparently since in the last 10 years, the consumption of marijuana in Mexico has growth, grown exp- exponentially. I think the reason for this is because after 9-11... The United States increased the security over their south borders, and because of that, the drug dealers had it, uh, a harder time trying to oh. uh, take their, their 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 stuff to the other side, so they try, uh, decided to increase the the local market mark- exactly
1: yeah. kind of like in high time or what's that? Uh, what is it High Times or yeah. Dave Chappelle?
2: Oh, I don't know.
3: Yeah, but <laughs> one thing for sure is that uh, the Mexican drug cartels are the ones who took over the, the cocaine uh, market from the Colombians. They are now the ones who are exporting cocaine even to, to Europe.
1: Yeah, is that, is that what's causing more of the problem nowadays? Is it cocaine more than, more than pot, you think? Or is it still it- pot?
3: I really, I really can't say, without with any any certainty. I mean, but we do know that uh, marijuana is still uh, a a huge a huge chunk of the illegal drugs market.
1: Yeah, the fuck! It blows me away that they haven't woken up yet. Like, I really expected it to have come come around by now. I still think it's going to happen in our life.
2: Well, now it's it's that. such a complex issue, and it comes down to money and power again. Because you know the the big pharma and all that. There's more. There's more prescription overdose now than from illegal, exactly. from illegal drugs, and it's been like that for a few years. Like it's
3: yeah, it's one of the other things that the uh, Gupta said in the documentary that he tried to find one single one case of a death by a marijuana overdose, and he never managed to find one single case.
1: No, I've I've read before someplace like you'd have to be able to ingest like 25 pounds of it at the same time somehow well, in order is... to, to do it, which is physically impossible.
2: You might think you're dying sometimes, but you won't. Yeah, well,
3: you obviously, <laughs> they show that if you uh, consume too much, you get paranoid, yeah. you, you get anxiety attacks and all that.
1: Yeah, especially but, when you're eating it.
3: Yeah. yeah, but you can get that from uh, taking too many Red Bulls too, man. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just had both. <laughs> oh, man. You're a dirty devil. You told
2: me to pick up little red balls on the way here, and I thought you were talking about little red pills because we're talking to Red Pill Junkie, and then you're saying, no, Little Red Bull.
1: Yeah, man. Podcasting. That, you know?
3: that texting. That spell check. So, so Red Bull is better <laughs> than black powder, then?
1: I don't know. I've <laughs> never tried black powder, to tell you the truth, but we kind of switch it up week to week. Mm. Like, uh, just whatever we choose that week, I guess. It's always some sort of energy drink, which is probably not the greatest thing in the world. But yeah.
2: Once no. a week doesn't hurt. <laughs> no,
3: I'm not a fan of Red Bull.
1: You are or you aren't?
3: No, aren't. Yeah. I
1: just That's got great. that because it's the only one you can get in a small can nowadays. Like, I remember when they first came yeah. out, they were all in small cans. Yeah. Now it's like no. all the other ones are like fucking a liter of fucking caffeine mm. and shit.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess we got pretty serious pretty quick there. So do you have anything uh do you have anything else uh we should switch gears
3: here? Let me see. Well, like I I uh, told told you guys about the president of Uruguay who is an atheist. And there was an interesting article that got a, a, a lot of discussion this week that a study which uh, uh, stretching back over decades to... Uh, apparently the, the, the result of this study concluded that religious people are less intelligent than atheists. <laughs> and obviously you say something like that and it's going to be fodder for controversy and, and people from both sides of the argument are going to fight about it.
2: What about spiritual people? Are they the most intelligent of all?
3: No, I don't think they they even try to
2: categorize that.
3: To categorize that, you know. I think to to this study religion is going to a church every Sunday yeah. and attend it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Hmm.
3: But I don't know. Uh, like uh some guy wrote I don't know I think it was in the Guardian, I don't know. Well Even if the average atheist is smarter than the average religious folk, that doesn't mean that you, by default, if you're an atheist, are smarter than any religious people passing down the street. You know, I I, I think you should be careful about all these broad generalizations because it can get pretty... uh, Pretty inconsequential and pretty even uh, sexist if you're not careful. Like saying, okay, now the reason why uh, more uh, men have won the Nobel Peace Prize is because obviously, but because men are smarter than women. And if you say that, you are an imbecile. (laughs) But even someone like Richard Dawkins uh, tweeted last week that. all the Muslims in the world have won less Nobel Nobel prizes than the, the professors at the Trinity College. Like trying to make a point that obviously that that means that uh, Muslim Muslim people are stupid by default.
1: Wow, well, that's that's uh, not good.
3: Yeah, that's why I wrote something last week about that. I titled it, I titled it "The Tweets of a Dick." Because honestly, <laughs> honestly, Richard Dawkins has become a public embarrassment for yeah. the atheist materialist movement. You know, they yeah. they have finally acknowledged that he is not a worthy spokesperson for their movement. That he is only an old uh, bigot.
1: bigot Yeah, I was gonna say the exact same thing. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, even even the atheists are ashamed of uh, of. Of of him,
1: he's yeah. I've actually seen that all over Twitter though. Now that you mention it, I've seen quite a bit of that that uh, anti-Dawkins sentiment going around. But it's always really just been a matter of time.
3: It it, it developed pretty slowly because, like I wrote wrote last week, in two thousand eight, he really was the biggest leader of the atheist movement. And if you ask to any self-proclaimed atheist who was uh, its bigger uh, uh, idol and most of the time they will will have answered that Richard Dawkins but nowadays uh, things have changed uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, scandals about comments he's made in the past and you know I think the atheist movement is ready to move on and trying to uh, to find uh, a, a, a less polarizing voice, you know, trying to be less confrontational because it's really not winning the argument. I mean, if, really, if you really want to, to win adherence, you really want to side with uh, ultra-nationalist right-wingers in Europe who also have a grudge against uh, Muslims. Is that really the, the kind of people you want to have on yeah. your corner?
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. It actually seems like there's a little more of that going on than than you heard about. I was actually watching some shit about in the other day about that going on in Greece. Some really strong like similarities to to the old Nazi
3: regime. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a rise of fascist movements going on in Europe, which is obviously understandable if you. I look back in history. Every time there is a, a, a times of economic strife with people who are losing their jobs and scared of the future, that's the, the fertile fertile soil for a, a seeding fear. You know, and trying to win adherents by telling them all your problems are this group's fault. You know. Back in the 40s, it was, it was the Jews, and now it's the Muslims. And soon it will be the aliens. Soon it will be the uh, contactees or the abductees. That's, that's actually one the um, most. Or even just hear.
1: their websites, or even just the UFO websites, us and the Grailian both getting uh, attacked the spi- in the same week.
3: Yeah, or the spiritualists who uh, refuse to get uh, an some kind of chip on their brain and to get upgraded into some kind of robo-sapien.
1: <laughs> That's almost like the story we were we were talking about on Twitter today here in Canada, where that chick was having dreams about uh, killing her daughters.
3: Uh, I, I wanted to discuss that with you guys. And but please,
1: she, the- she the dreams were scaring her, so she went in and told a psychologist oh, no. about it and said, you know, I'm having these dreams, what does it mean? And now all of a sudden she's in court.
3: So you're telling me that the psychologist actually denounced her to the police?
1: Um, I don't quote me on that. Okay. Uh, That's I'm paraphrasing the situation there.
3: Okay, sure. But that's you mentioned something on Twitter that I think that's was really insightful, uh, that this was very similar to something that our brains, our friends, Ben and Aaron discussed somewhat recently on mysterious universe. the, what
1: was it? Uh, what is it? Your the, abyss, your call of the abyss, or whatever. Call, exactly. I got it. I, I got oh, it from I, Graham for yeah. Graham's the one who wrote the comment about it, I think.
2: Yeah, because wow. I was mountain climbing and me and my buddy were talking. Well, I wasn't really mountain climbing; it was a hike. <laughs> but we we're he's afraid of these cliffs, and we we're <laughs> up there. And I, and at one point, I was like walking, and there's this big valley, and I was just picturing like, like jumping off into the valley and. We started mm-hmm. talking about that. He, he gets this fear when he's up on a cliff, and it's a, not a fear of suicide, but there's this weird fear that he's going to jump off. And he was talking to somebody about it and, and other his mountain-climbing friends, and they call it the call of the void
3: Yeah, is what it is. But some researchers think that this is kind of a psychological reaction, that having this, uh, that this uh, irrational impulse will deter you from actually doing it
1: yeah that's what i think too it's there to scare you straight like that what did that i forget what it does but that that lady had a bunch of kids and they're probably Mm -hmm. driving her fucking mental all day and you know what i mean and i'm not saying it's excuse, but she can't control what she's dreaming
4: yeah yeah, but i could
1: see that as being a dream is to stop her from doing anything crazy because you know in her dream she probably totally thinks it's real and she probably feels fucking terrible when she wakes up and that's kind of her mind self-medicating itself somehow. Or who knows? Maybe it's just a, a fucking dream. Either way, <laughs> it's no reason to be looking at, uh, you know, being under surveillance or losing your kids and shit over. I mean, she's the one who went to seek help for it because it was scaring her. Obviously, she's not thinking about killing her kids in real life.
3: Yeah, exactly. You guys know, uh, you probably know who Daniele Bolelli is. Yeah. Yeah. He's a friend of Joe Rogan. He recently wrote a book uh, titled Create Your Own Religion. Yeah. And he also has a podcast, The Drunken Taoist, mm-hmm. which which I highly recommend. I'm a huge fan of, of him. And he, in one of these podcasts, he, he he tells that he's a single parent. And, uh, and it's perfectly no- normal. Even if you love your children with all your heart, that maybe at three in the morning after being deprived of proper sleep for the last two weeks because your baby's crying and you don't know what to do. It's perfectly normal to so sometimes to, when you wake, wake up at the cries of your baby, to have this incontrollable uh, idea that you want to uh, toss your baby from the, win- from the window, you know? Obviously, you're not going to do it, and you are not a terrible person if you have this, uh, this idea uh, popping on your head. Uh, but it's obvious that you are only reacting to stress. And when it, co- when it comes to dreams, uh, what happens is that your unconscious is playing all these uh, symbolic dramas in, in your head. That maybe if you have a dream that you kill your mother, it's not because you actually want to kill her, but because you have some unresolved issue with your childhood, and that is a way uh, to uh, a kind of symbolic drama in order to integrate that negative uh, uh, thought, negative negative aspect of your your uh, personality, what what Carl Jung will call your shadow.
2: And there's, so. there's people that have been, like, he- healing that type of uh, nightmare and dream, right? I, re- I read that book. I-, I started trying to lucid dream. Stephen LeBurge mm-hmm. wrote the book, Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming. And Steve Volk talked about it, too, in his uh, – that's where I found it, actually, from his book, uh, Fringeology. Fringeology. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's fascinating, people, uh, you know, confronting their nightmares. Steve Volk did it himself, I think, and he confronted his nightmare and uh, – and got rid of it through lucid yeah. dreaming.
3: hmm Yeah. It's, it's a nice... But...
2: but again, it's not accepted and it's not, uh, you know, frowned upon in, in all these scientific circles. So again, like people can't explore these alternate ways of, uh, of healing. Yeah. Apparently, you should just keep
1: your mouth shut.
2: Yeah, that's really healthy. That's
1: what the pro- the main pro- yeah. problem I have with it is yeah. that that's if it, you it, do yeah. open your mouth now, yeah. you're not just getting ridiculed. Now, there's actual legal repercussions. But on the other side, the flip side of that is what if you don't do fuck all and then she really kills her kids? Like, some people are fucking crazy. So, I mean, but it's it's a slippery slope, I guess, is my main concern with it.
3: Yeah, bottom line is that Western civilization is really lousy in trying to deal with all these psychological issues. It's either, like you say, shut your uh, your your mouth and trying to uh, ignore it, and all the tra- tension builds up until so- maybe someday it will it will crack, upon the all uh, all the tension because everyone has a breaking point, or you go to a to, uh, psychiatrist and ev- everything is resolved with a, with a pill, with a, prescri- a prescription pill. Yeah. You know, everything has a chemical answer according to, to medical science.
1: Yeah, well, it used to be all plant-based before uh, Rockefeller got his hands in there. <laughs> and then it switched to chemical-based in a hurry and we've never really looked back.
3: Yeah, but, but maybe it would be better if you, in, instead of have, uh, having a, a family doctor, you will also have a family shaman, you know, someone you could disclose your dreams with him yeah, or her, yeah. you know. Someone who could maybe try to help you with those issues, maybe giving you some kind of drugs sometimes, or maybe just trying to listen to you and, well, People will say, "Well, that's exactly why what psychologists or psychiatrists do," but it, it, it's not enough.
2: No, because there may be a spiritual solution to some of these issues, and not just a, a pharmacological solution.
3: Yeah, and even if you say to to your employer, "Well, I'm look, I'm I'm going to see a shrink," they immediately say, "Ah, there's something wrong with this guy. You know, yeah. he's unstable. Otherwise, why he's going? Why is he going to see a shrink?" And that's why people, like you said, prefer to keep it to themselves, try to solve the, their issues by themselves.
1: And then they really do snap.
3: And then they really do snap because, let's face it, our our modern uh, life it's full of stress everywhere. Everywhere you look, there is stress. You know, when you wake up at six in the morning and your alarm clock goes beep beep beep. I mean, that's you you. you immediately your, your your heart pressure goes up, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, it's like that until you go to sleep 10, 12 hours later.
2: And there's been scientific evidence now like that talk therapy or counseling actually does help people too, but it has to be in a trusted environment where you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, this yeah. happening.
3: Now, maybe it will be interesting if, if there's already some kind of virtual therapy, you know, with with uh, veteran soldiers trying to deal with their post post-traumatic stress disorders, trying to recreate in virtual reality the kind of scenes or environments that triggers their their stress. So maybe in the future we will all be able to have that. That kind of uh, technology at our at our disposal, the, the same way we all have a a video game console.
2: Yeah. Hmm.
3: That that will be a positive aspect of uh, the coming singularity.
2: Yeah, we yeah. always seem to come back to
3: that singularity. <laughs> Man, it's 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 what it's looming yeah. uh, on our future. Yeah. You know It will be stupid not to uh, to talk about the elephant in the room.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I was just actually looking up uh, psychiatric malpractice, and it mm. says uh, a psychiatrist may, a psychiatrist may have uh, a duty to warn police if he or she learns that a patient intends to commit a crime, likewise a psychiatrist generally has a legal duty to report child abuse
3: yeah, but i mean
1: so I not- can see how she could how it could be convoluted around enough to to, to get away with it, because that seems like that's what's going
3: on yeah, but uh, I mean I don't buy it uh, how, how do you go from telling uh, a dream that ah uh, i dr- I dreamed last night that I killed my child to the medic the professional uh, psychiatrist actually believing that there is an uh, an actual danger uh, to the child's life you know, uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I I I we should definitely probably look into it a little bit yeah, more too cuz there could be more our, background.
3: Maybe, maybe. I've only right. read
1: the one article on it. Yeah. But uh on that note I suppose we should uh probably start thinking about wrapping it up. Um did okay. you have anything else you want to get to before we go red?
3: What else? What else? Ah, speaking about the, the terrifying things coming on our future. I I found this very interesting article on the Atlantic saying about uh, something on the Air Force wish list. It's they want to have swarms of lethal uh, tiny bugs.
1: Oh, those little robots. Yeah, they. they oh, they those ha- are fucking creepy
3: looking. Yeah, they're talking about having little drones that they could. I, I, I read this. The, dr- the drone swarm through LOS. Crawl across windowsills and perch on power lines. One of them sneaks up on a scalding man holding a gun and shoots him in the head. Yeah, meaning like- that these goddamn tiny uh, robots will be able to kill people.
1: Yeah, I fucking that is fucking crazy, and they're just tiny. Like I think they're like an inch but smaller than an inch, a square inch.
2: And they can sense where each other are and fly in swarms, right? Yeah,
1: like and they, they can they actually go in into a window. About just and... having these things everywhere yeah. all the time, like yeah, all yeah, over that, the place. No matter yeah, what, always having, watching.
3: Yeah, like super intelligent African bees.
2: What? And they've got cameras on them too and stuff.
1: Oh yeah. well, they they'd have to be. That's too many to fucking operate. Yeah, they, they'd have to give them some sort of. See, that's where we get into engineering morality into a machine again. Because there's no way they're controlling them all individually. Like, it's going to be some sort of software that can fucking probably flip out if it wants to. Or if something happens, like a little solar flare, you know, something tweaks that we might not even know about. And then all of a sudden, all these things start going fucking mental. Like, remember that old movie uh, where the vehicles started trying to run everyone over?
3: Yeah, right. That was like
1: the very first, uh, the original <laughs> Machines Turn on You movie. I think it was like Overdrive or something.
3: It was made by Steven Spielberg, right?
1: I think so, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, with this uh, trailer. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But it's a really uh, terrifying uh, terrifying concept, if I say so myself.
2: Hmm.
3: You know, too too much power. Maximum Overdrive, that sort of way.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, Maximum Overdrive, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, that
1: I, I seen that article the other day, and it like almost literally almost made me shiver. Like,
3: yeah, yeah I, t- I tried to uh, tweet it to Joe Rogan. Tell, tell that's him. where
1: I seen it. Actually, this
3: is, going, this is going to scare you more than a pack of corn chips.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's like, oof. and then and then when you think about the black world again, right? Like, we can come back to this uh, that we always talk about the white mm-hmm. world. This is available now for us to look at.
1: I don't think um, it was available yet. I think it's like just real close. Well, that's what I mean. But no, but I mean, I, I mean, it's I'm available sure as an article, that. right?
2: So uh, when have they really developed this?
3: Look, there is this guy. I think I discussed discussed him with you uh, on previous occasions, Blake Mackenzie Blake, who has contributed to the Dark Lord anthologies, and uh, this is a guy who used to go to Area Fifty Area One with his friends. Back in the '90s, back when it wasn't even an, an, uh, as popular at, as it is now, you know. But back way before there uh, uh, was, yeah, way before there was talk about uh, flying saucers on the hangars of every Fifty One and all that. Those guys were going with their with their tents and their sleeping bags and uh, hiking through the desert to try to catch a glimpse. Of all these uh, uh, weird lights uh, flying around the base, and in one of the essays that he wrote for Darklore, he he tells that he was with one of his friends and he was making a a drink uh, for his friend, and then his friend found some very creepy looking uh, insect in, in, in his glass and it, it it creeped him out. He tossed the, the 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 glass away and Blake tried to find it because he was convinced that this was actually a, a very sophisticated drone. And wow. this was in the 90s. Yeah. So maybe this guy, th- these guys already have some kind of very sophisticated miniaturized uh robotic technology
2: nano swarms
3: yeah maybe not the size of a bee but maybe the size of a hummingbird yeah,
2: yeah.
1: you know fuck that <laughs> <laughs> um on that note i suppose we'll wrap it up of course you guys can always find uh rpj uh on, all over on the place, Twitter, yeah, or, or, or <laughs> wherever, just just uh, anywhere on the internet, really. I'm sure if he hasn't been there yet, he'll be there soon. All the Matrix is my domain.
2: <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Where? where no, you can... that's
1: all right. Um, so uh, thanks for coming, R P J. We're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with our with our chat with Thomas Fusco, uh, which went which went uh, pretty good as well. So thanks for coming, Red.
3: Thanks for inviting you guys. See you next time.
1: Uh, Here with us tonight, as promised, is Thomas P. Fusco, author of uh, Behind the Cosmic Veil, is it, Graham?
2: Yep. So Thomas P. Fusco is an independent researcher who's devoted nearly three decades investigating the relationship between mind physics, spirituality, parapsychology, scientific anomalies, and the paranormal phenomena, with the goal of uncovering the unifying cosmological framework that has eluded mankind for generations. Since the official book launch of his book in November 2011, he has been invited to speak as a guest on over 200 national and international radio programs, including Coast to Coast AM. Mr. Fusco will be speaking and presenting at both the upcoming Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis. This is uh, October 17th to 20th. Darren and I will be there to see him in person. Can't wait for that. And he's also going to be at the uh, Spirits, Shadows, and Secrets International Symposium. That's going to be held in the fall of 2014 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Maybe I we did, should go to Scotland. I didn't know for he was one.
1: going to Paradigm.
2: Yeah. Fuck
1: yeah. I, sh- I should pay attention.
2: Yeah, you should. And he's also been a participant in the VIP imitation only think tank conference called The Gathering in November 2012.
1: Okay, so uh without further ado, uh how's it going
2: tonight, uh Mr.
1: Fusco?
0: Oh, very good, guys. Thanks for having me on.
2: You're welcome. Yeah, it's been a, it's our pleasure. We've been looking forward to this for a while.
1: Um so I guess uh for right out of the gate, uh maybe could you just give people that haven't read the book a quick outline of uh what it's about and what you're trying to bring together?
0: Well, uh yeah, you know, it, For example, paranormal phenomena is something that's always been a curiosity for me. Um, I had a number of uh, personal experiences earlier in my life, and I'll discuss them on air, but either way, uh, they caused me to call into question uh, the model of uh, reality, the model of uh, physics that I was taught at university. And so what became the compelling question for me is how the universe is put together that could allow these things to occur. Uh, There's been uh, a lot of, uh, let's say, speculation throughout the years uh, about uh, science and the supernatural and how these two could be merged together. But there's never really been a good cosmological framework in which to make that happen. And so that's the, the thrust of my work is to come up, as, as my bio says, with a cosmological framework that accommodates all these phenomena in a, cohe- uh, a coherent and consistent uh, pattern, uh, blueprint, if you will. And so that resulted in a theory that I call supergeometrics, And that's basically the thrust of my book, Behind the Cosmic Veil. I give all the background information as to all the pertinent, what we would call anomalies, uh, that we observe not only in supernatural phenomena, but also in physics itself. And to come up with some kind of a a coherent model in which all those things fit together and kind of make sense.
2: Hmm. So i've just read your book and it it was very fascinating, pretty deep, of course um and, and i 'm going to have it with me, I think, as a reference book for a while, like this is going to be one of those books I want to go back to because you go you go into like the history of the theory of everything from all these scientists I mean you get into you know quantum physics, scriptures, the paranormal gravity i mean um I especially like the the history of the theory of everything because it really shows that. Science was kind of out there, too, but people don't really look at it that way.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, early on in my research, it came, uh, became obvious that the traditional ways of approaching these kinds of problems just did not come up with good solutions. I mean, even today, when you hear people talk about, in the paranormal field, uh, about science, and trying to merge those things together. Quite often what what you get is, uh, how would you say it? Uh, phrases like uh, what I call, looks like, sounds like, reminds me of, but there's never any kind of a concrete stake that's stuck in the ground and say, you know, that you could say, well, this is what it is. And so I knew that the picture was larger than just simply trying to find scientific explanations for the paranormal. It had to be something that actually struck at the very heart of the way reality is put together. And so that's why my book covers so many uh, uh, topics. Uh, It really is a new conceptual theory of everything. That paranormal phenomenon represents just one body of evidence that's incorporated into that model.
1: Um, I'd like to to talk to you a little bit about your theories on uh, gravity. That's part part of your work that interests me the most.
0: Yeah, gravity is a fascinating thing. And this also became, for me, uh, a very fundamental element in putting this theory together. Uh, Because if we take a look at gravity... We find that every time our sciences has tried to tackle this as a conventional force, it's always, uh, uh, it's always thwarted us. Uh, you know, gravity, if it's a force, it should be something that propagates as a wave and has a particulate form, like electromagnetism that uh, propagates as an electromagnetic mag- uh, magnetic field. That's its waveform. And uh, its particulate form is an electron. So gravity is s- supposed to have something like a graviton or what we might call a gravitational boson and uh, gravity waves. But decades of research have failed to find any evidence that a physical component to gravity actually exists. Um, And there's other problems with it, too. There's multiple problems. When Einstein was working on his unified field equations uh, with his uh, theory that all forces were once united into a single unified field at the beginning of the universe, uh, the thing that stopped him was his inability to express gravity throughout four dimensions mathematically, uh, length, width, depth, and time which, ironically, that concept of a four-dimensional space-time was his own brainchild, and yet he was not able to reconcile gravity with it mathematically. Um, We still have a situation where the two major models that we use to describe reality, which is relativity at the macro level and quantum physics, at the micro level, uh, we might call it, or the you know uh, subatomic level. Uh, the one thing that stops us from reconciling those two things is gravity. Uh, so every time we look at this in a conventional way, uh, it just doesn't come up with the right answers. Um, another problem, uh, you folks may have heard of what they call the standard model. It is a theoretical construct in physics that lists the fundamental particles that exist in the universe and all their interactions. Uh, And it works quite well, but most laypeople are surprised to find that the standard model of physics uh, not only has no expression for gravity, but there's actually no place for gravity to fit into it. It functions without the presence of gravity in the equation, so to speak. So, uh, when we put this all together, it brought me to the conclusion that we're looking at gravity in the wrong way. This is why we're not able to figure out what it is. We know what it does. We know a lot about gravitational effect, but what the actual substance of gravity is eludes us. Hmm. And so, for me, It became a question of taking a look at it and saying, well, what if gravity is not an attractive force? What if gravity isn't a fundamental force at all? What if we need to really look at it more like how Einstein looked at it, where he saw gravity as a function of the bending of space, that his theory – Uh, predicted and has been experimentally proved all uh, over and over again, that the actual geometry of space-time is warped or bent around all physical objects, and what Einstein said is that gravity is an effect where objects get caught up into these bends and spiral down into them, and that produces the effect that we call gravity but just because gravitational effect is associated with the bending of space doesn't necessarily infer that the bending of space is caused by adjacent mass now this is pretty this is where it gets pretty hairy and this is where it goes contrary to what conventional physics or what I call the materialistic paradigm of physics would maintain. The conventional view is that mass bends the space around it and thereby produces the effect known as gravity. But one of the problems that we have with that is that we observe gravitational effects where there is no adjacent mass. Hmm. And in fact Our measuring instruments, uh, our instrumentation has become so accurate, so sensitive, that we now know that close to 90% of the gravitational effect that we observe in the universe has no adjacent mass to account for it. It's just there all by itself. And so in order to shoehorn this into a material paradigm, And I should back up for a moment and and explain what I mean by a material paradigm. One of the fundamental philosophies of physics uh, today is that reality is what is physical. And what is physical is reality. They're synonymous and mutually inclusive. In other words, there's no aspect of reality that isn't physical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I consider that to be a false paradigm.
4: Yeah.
0: That reality is more than what's physical. Um, but trying to keep that into that material paradigm, when we see physical effects with no direct physical cause, the paradigm compels physicists. To imagine to fill the gap yeah. and i detected yeah. and so one of the you know, classic examples of that is dark matter yeah. uh, my explanation is or, or my way of reading it is that dark matter doesn't exist that when we look out in the cosmos and we see all these various gravitational effects that we're measuring and actually see these huge areas of gravitational lensing where space is actually bent, without any matter being present to do it, my interpretation of that is that it is exactly what it appears to be, Mm. that we have literally gravitational effect with no local adjacent mass to account for it. Now, if we open our minds and consider the possibility that reality is more than what is material, and that opens up the door to accept the possibility that gravity is not local, but is what we would call non local. That it is an effect with no direct, local, connected physical cause to it. Uh, so and that thing.
1: It just, just kind of does whatever it wants.
0: Well, in a sense, you know, what it means is that there is. Another aspect to reality, beyond the dimensions of space and time, the processes therein which causes effects that are observable in physical space-time, it's almost like an invisible influence bending space, and what we're seeing is the after-effect of it. Um, This is actually not a new idea. It's just never, there's been a number of different ideas that I've put together that have never been associated before.
2: It seems like it's opening up a bit, though, in the last few years. I feel like I'm always saying this, but especially about gravity. Uh, do you think it's changing in the, in the scientific community? The,
0: the f- I think what the scientific community, what we're in right now, is what I call the age of denial.
2: <laughs> do you think we're at the end of that or the, well, or the middle? Well, we're getting
0: there. Uh, we have literally run out of material in the universe to explain all the effects <laughs> that we see.
4: Yeah.
0: And I think physics has to come to a point where they realize they're at a, that a, a, they're at a conceptual dead end. That there is no s- such thing as a graviton. That there is no such thing as dark matter. And when we ultimately come to the conclusion that this has to be a possibility that has to be seriously considered, then we're going to be able to start looking at reality in other ways.
2: Yeah. Do you think that'll happen fast when it when it does sort of shift?
0: It's hard to tell. You know, it's. It's hard to say what's going to cause a a paradigm shift. Right. Um, One of the examples, and if you read my book, you you see me talking about the uh, paradigm of of plate tectonics,
4: Mm -hmm.
0: continental drift, where the idea had been bounced around for centuries. But up until even the 1950s, it was considered to be quack science. But up until that time, we really didn't know what caused earthquakes and volcanoes. Uh, And we didn't really understand fully whether they were even related or not. And then the concept of plate tectonics came along. And suddenly in the 60s, the veil was lifted and everything changed. It changed very quickly. Um, And so now even a school child can understand not only what causes earthquakes and volcanoes, and that they're actually related. The underlying mechanics of it are the same, but we also have it tossed in with the mountain formation now, that we understand that the formation of mountains are due to the same process, which really was, would have been wild speculation even, uh, what, 60 years ago.
2: Yeah, similar to the meteor uh, showers, remember there was denial about, uh, you know, even asteroids or meteors falling from the sky.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, the uh, Paris Academy of Science declared that there's no such thing as meteors as rocks (laughs) falling from the sky (laughs) because there just simply aren't any rocks in the sky. (laughs) You know, it sounds like that pretty sound reasoning makes sense to me, you know, except that uh, ultimately real science winds up being counterintuitive. Mm. Uh, Most of the real truths of science aren't things that we would naturally assume based on conventional thinking. Uh, You know, Einstein's work on relativity was a mere intellectual curiosity until 19 years after he published uh, a team working with uh, the right location, at the right conditions, at the right telescope and the photography went fine where they photographed a solar eclipse in a particular way, uh, they proved Einstein's theory of relativity. And once that experiment was conducted, the world changed literally overnight. So we don't really know what kind of events going to uh, uh, create such a shift, a paradigm shift.
2: I also really loved your... Uh your chapters on evolution. Like, I've always thought there's some missing uh, links, missing information.
1: It's aliens, dude.
2: (laughs) No, it just doesn't seem like, you know, everything's in a nice, neat, tidy box like the mainstream science community would have us think.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, when you even read, you know, the scientific journals, and you read different types of archaeological uh, discoveries uh, that refer or relate to evolution. You can see within those writings how it's highly disputed uh, what's going on, that there's something that, uh, like evolution that is taking place, but that it doesn't, there's too many anomalies in it to fit this neat, clean, standard model that you get taught in school. Uh, the reality is, is that there are some uh, very serious problems, uh, the, uh, the, one of the latest uh, considerations is that natural selection may not be the only thing that creates an evolutionary effect. And this is something that's being tossed around in the mainstream right now. Of course, my argument's very simple. I like to get to the root of things and say things in the simplest way that I can. And so you know one of my statements is, uh, is that evolution is a statement begun in mid-sentence that the first half, the second half of the sentence looks pretty good. but the first half of the sentence is missing. And when we study systems in physics, we establish a set of laws and principles that define and govern, and determine the nature of the system that we're studying. And we can set the system in motion and see how those things develop and progress. But what the problem with evolution is is that it cannot explain how life emerged from inanimate matter. And therefore, you're dealing with a theory that begins after the fact. It describes the effect, but it cannot define the cause. So just there, by itself, that one sentence is enough to show that evolution in its current form is either incomplete or inaccurate.
2: How does uh, supergeometry fit into that, then?
0: Well, let's talk about supergeometry for a second.
2: (laughs) If you want to jump right in there, yeah.
0: (laughs) Sure. Uh, The basic concept is this, is that reality is more than what is physical yeah that there is something that is non-physical that is an aspect to reality. this idea is a very old idea. It goes back a long way. Plato talked about it. Uh, the concept is mentioned in the Bible, where we have this order, structure. Uh, probably the best word for it is in the Bible in the New Testament first paragraph of the gospel of John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through the word, but the underlying Greek word for that is logos L O G O S. And that is a Greek philosophical term predates the, the, the new Testament by about 500 years. And the concept means thought idea, mind pattern, matrix, blueprint, it's that kind of a concept. It has actually no exact English equivalent. And so it's this idea that there is a collection of, if we we're going to use it in modern terms, we would say a collection of information that is coherent and orderly that exists beyond and above space and time, matter and energy and furthermore that what we see in the physical realm of space, time, matter and energy the order that we see in that actually emerges from this higher order that is not physical if we go into the 20th century we have a very very prominent physicist several of them not, not fringe or quack, but mainstream, highly respected physicists.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, David Bohm, for one, he's known very much for the, his idea of the holographic universe. But what he called it was implicate order. It wasn't physical, lay outside of space-time, but that it gave rise to the explicate order of time, space, matter, and energy. Uh, One of Bohm's ideas was also that the human brain does not generate thought. That thought is actually generated outside the brain, and that the brain is a conduit, a machine that is able to process, receive, and express thought. Uh, John Wheeler uh, called it pre-geometry, David Finkelstein calls it coherent superpositions. My concept of supergeometry is the very same, except that I wanted to use a set of terms that was not only consistent with mainstream physics terms, uh, because geometry is something that's mainstream. Super is a standard term in physics that describes a superset of another system. So supergeometry was something that I thought people would be able to wrap their heads around uh, a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the term comes from. What it leads us to gentlemen, at least what it's led me to is to come up with a paradigm that states that the fundamental quality of the physical universe is that it is an expression of materialized and materializing information. Now the concept of information is well built into the mainstream of physics today. um, That matter and energy and the structures therein are determined by information. So much so that we have an extension to the um, to the conservation laws we were all taught in school. Matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Mm-hmm. Well, today we have an extension of that called quantum unitarity that says the information from which matter and energy is formed itself can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, it's one of the problems which uh, uh, still uh, kind of uh, befuddles us when we try to understand what's going on inside of a black hole because our current models would require the destruction of information. And according to our understanding of the laws of of the universe, the physical universe, uh, that should not be allowed. The difference in my work is to recognize that as a fundamental paradigm of the universe, not just a different way of measuring a certain aspect of it, but it really lies at the heart of what reality is. And what's interesting about my definition of the universe is that when you look at any aspect of physical reality, you find that it falls under this one sentence definition, that the universe is an expression of materialized and materializing information. And I believe it is the only one-sentence definition that is able, in a very broad sense, to encompass everything that is in physical reality. Uh, so I know we're getting close to the truth with that, to what, what we really need to be looking at. Um, an interesting aspect of that, when we begin to look at it that way, uh, when we think about well, let's say when we think about paranormal phenomena or supernatural phenomena, and the first thing that we do when we look at it, when we're thinking about what's going on, if we take that paradigm and use it as our fundamental understanding or our, our, our base of operations, so to speak, when we look at paranormal phenomena, that it is an expression of materialized and materializing information. Suddenly that opens up your mind. This weird mental fog, this block that has been, you know, stopping and and frustrating researchers Mm -hmm. for even centuries. When you start thinking about it as an expression of materializing information, Suddenly, that fog lifts, the veil is pushed aside, and we can begin to think about it in a way that is not only scientifically consistent and relevant, but also begins to give us some sort of a grasp of what we're actually looking
2: at. So are you saying it's kind of materialization at a quantum level then?
0: Well, I think that the entire universe materializes at a quantum level. Yeah, um we here 's another kind of a uh aspect of reality, as I mentioned earlier uh, scientific reality is normally counterintuitive. It goes against what our conventional thinking would would tell us so for example, when we look into the subatomic world, and even our name for it is subatomic. <laughs> You know, that it's underlying, that it's something that underlies regular reality as if it's a substrate of it. Where I believe the realistic way of looking at it is that the quantum realm is the upper end of the physical universe. That hard dimensions of space and time and matter and energy descend from that quantum realm. And that quantum realm, moreover, is like an interface between the physical universe and what I call the superphysical universe. Mm -hmm. So when we take a look at the quantum level, we are actually seeing reality trickling down into the physical Aspect of it, and all we're looking at is the the, the uppermost physical surface of that interface between what is superphysical and what is physical, and it acts in the weird ways that it does because it's not quite physical yet; it's in the process of being materialized. Mm-hmm. And so consequently, there are insufficient dimensional variables, and anybody who's a student of Einstein would know exactly what that means. There is insufficient variables to designate any kind of dimensional coordinate, either temporal or spatial. And that's why the quantum realm acts in the weird ways that it does. Mm-hmm it's just a different when you accept the possibility of a super physical aspect of reality you are able to begin to look at information that we already have in new and different ways that are quite revealing just as when the concept of continental drift was finally embraced and looked at seriously We didn't have any quantum leap in our intelligence. Like, you know, the aliens are feeding us extra IQ or something (laughs) like that. We didn't have any increase in the information and data that we had collected over centuries. We just found a different way of looking at it, and poof, the world changed.
2: So one of my favorite chapters was the one on quantum topology. I don't know why that just seemed to to ring true and it sounds exactly like just an earlier theory of what you're talking about now, right?
0: Yes. In other words, one of the here's what we run into. And I know you folks, you fellows there have heard a lot of different ideas being circulated around. And what I want to do to try to clarify what I'm what I'm about to say is to refer for a moment to Uh, Eastern physics, uh, as opposed to Western sciences. Uh, In the Eastern tradition, their early name for physics was called Wu Li. And this is a dual term. It's a compound term. It stands for form and substance. Wu Ling? Wu Li. W-U-L-I. Wu Li. Oh, okay. And I can't forget, I, I can't remember offhand, you have to forgive me, which is the Wu and which is the Li. <laughs> but one of them is form and one of them is substance. So when you look at a snowflake, its structure is its form. And the water ice that it's made from is its substance. Mm
4: hmm.
0: Now, when we look at things this way, and again, this is a completely different paradigm, it's not a Western paradigm, it's an Eastern paradigm. But when we look at it that way, and then we start thinking about all these various ideas that people have had about these strange phenomena, even a conventional uh, phenomenon, we find that they've all been talking about substance and they haven't considered information, Mm -hmm. the form. Mm -hmm. So when you hear people talking about frequencies and wavelengths and this and that, that's substance. Well, we talk about Einstein's, uh, uh, what he called his uh, uh, continuous spatial field, which is the field of space-time, that is, established by four independent variables, length, width, depth, and time, Einstein was talking about the substance of the universe. And he proved to us this was the clay. This was the raw material from which everything was made, but he never addressed the form. And this is what all these theories have been lacking and have been overlooking. In fact, our current understanding of the universe itself one of the gaping holes in it is that physics has no idea where universal order came from. How particles actually emerged as particles. That we had this big bang and this huge expansion of this cosmic primitive soup. And everywhere in the universe at the same time, we started getting uh, photons, electrons forming, Uh, atoms, molecules, all coming together with the exact same singular blueprint. In other words, there was no trial and error or evolutionary process where prematerial particles Mm. tried to assemble themselves and disassemble and reassemble until... Someone got an atom correct, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and then all other atoms in the universe propagated from that first atom. Uh -uh. Mm Uh-uh. They all started forming everywhere in the universe to the same plan at the exact same time. And so here's something that mainstream physics has not been able to address, which is the information from which these things were assembled, because they can't explain where that information would come from in a strictly physical paradigm
1: yeah, that kind of the same way that they can explain how two different two paired electrons, no matter how far away they are, can instantaneously detect when the other's spin is changed
0: uh yes, uh it's called uh photon teleport, which I don't care for that term uh but yes, that's what we're talking about the the current term for it is quantum entanglement.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's like um at that level things aren't aren't governed by the speed of light or, or information isn't governed by the speed of light at least.
0: Mm. Or more uh, better put, it is not constrained by the speed of light. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I've heard, uh, and these particles could be light years apart, and we have an instantaneous uh, transmission of information about the state of particle A being instantaneously conferred to particle B, no matter where it is in the universe. Now, if we were to try to explain that from a strictly physical paradigm, we would have to call that a very specific term. It's called infinite velocity. And infinite velocity—it's almost an oxymoron. It's like saying honest politician.
1: It's—it's <laughs> it's almost like the uh, the quantum level of things is a, a Mac computer, and the macro oh, is a come PC.
2: On. Come on, <laughs> that's no fair. Yeah,
0: the. Uh, uh, um, the What infinite velocity means is that a given value becomes instantaneously everywhere in the universe, in the immense universe, at the exact same coordinate in time. Hmm. And that is a material impossibility. So quantum physicists come up with explanations like, well, really, the two particles aren't really separated. They're part of a greater system. Okay. Well, what is that system? You don't really know.
2: Well, it's like the web upon web upon web of that. Wasn't that what he said in quantum topology? It was like uh, layer upon layer of this web connecting everything together? Yes. Yeah.
1: That's kind of like we were talking with Grant Cameron about last week. About I, I think it's when I was talking about uh, being like layers of a hard drive and us being in a simulation.
2: Well, I was going to ask you about that, about because sometimes your theory and uh, the supergeometry reminds me of some of the, the theories about uh, us being a computer simulation, like some of those simulation-type uh, theory of everything's coming out.
0: Well, now, I want to say something that I sometimes... Um, make myself a little bit unpopular within this genre. (laughs) That's okay. For saying certain things.
1: Anything goes in Grimerica.
0: (laughs) Well, that's great. One of the unique positions that my theory has placed me in is to be able to qualitatively critique other competing ideas because... My theory is based on very specific pieces of evidence. And it also makes, and this is what separates mine from what's come before, is that it makes predictions that are experimentally testable. And, and I don't mean like predictions like psychic predictions. Uh, you know, I mean predictions like uh, if you conduct a certain kind of an experiment.
1: Yeah, like a hypothesis. True, so
0: Right, the experiment is going to create a certain result that would have been unexpected except when predicted in the light of this uh, particular theory. Here's one of your problems with the uh, matrix kind of idea that we're in a computer simulation. Computers are binary. It's either a one or a zero, on or off. Ought or not but there's many aspects of our reality that from their very fundamental roots are analog do you know what I mean by that yeah all right you know analog is 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 physical waves um, you know like in in a conventional telephone when you pick it up and you talk on it and hear on it It's being transmitted through those wires, through frequency and amplitude, modulation. And that is analog, as opposed to digital, which is ones and zeros. Well, ones and zeros cannot produce analog components of reality. They simply cannot. So the idea of building something like it was seen in the movie, The Matrix, it's very attractive. Certain scientists kind of circulate that to kind of get, you know, uh, trigger the public's imagination. And some of them actually trade on those kinds of ideas to get popularity, to get notoriety. The reality of it is that the kind of world that is depicted in the movie, The Matrix, is physically impossible.
1: So, what do you think about uh, guys like Kurzweil and fellows like him with saying that we might one day be able to merge our consciousness with uh, with technology?
0: Well, we have a, a, a here's another place where I kind of wrestle with uh, conventional terminology. What is consciousness? How do we define it? It's very subjective and it's difficult to, in fact it's impossible, we have found it impossible either to qualify what consciousness is or quantify it, where technology is a very qualifiable and quantifiable commodity. So I'm not opposed to the concept, I'm opposed to the terminology. It's too ambiguous, it's too, uh, how would you say it? It's what I call, it, it falls into the realm of paranormal pulp. Hmm. Uh, that when you really dig into it, it's a very difficult thing to lay your hands on. Uh, it's very, you know, nebulous. What I like to do is talk about the physical brain, the human brain, because that's a physical object. And it is constructed according to the laws and the principles of the greater universe in which it is a part of what we might say it is a subset of the greater universe in which it's a component.
1: Isn't that exactly what kind of – you know, these technology guys talk, talk about being able to merge uh, consciousness with tech, technology, but isn't that in itself just proving those laws – wrong because in order to do that you've got to admit that consciousness is essentially nothing you know has no mass at least
0: well what you're what you're talking about is a topic that demonstrates the inability to qualify or quantify what consciousness means What I try to do is take a look at the the human brain. I like to talk talk a lot about the brain more so than the mind or consciousness or those kinds of things because I consider the mind and consciousness to be a subset of the brain. So rather than talking about the subset, in other words, trying to reckon the reality of intelligence, so to speak, based on the concept of consciousness, is like, to me, trying to determine the structure of an internal combustion engine by studying the exhaust fumes that are coming out of the tailpipe. That's a good analogy. You can determine certain things, but in order to really understand the machine, you have to have access to the engine. And so, for me, the engine is the human brain. Now let's take it a step further, if the human brain is a subset of of the greater universe, and if the universe is a system, and we know it is, that's governed by a strict set of laws and principles, which we know that it is, we don't know them all yet, we're still discovering them, but we do know that it is a very specific set of laws and principles that govern the greater universe two examples that I use, Uh, two atoms of hydrogen and an atom of oxygen combined in a molecule, which is H2O. At standard temperature and pressure, in the presence of a gravity field sufficiently to gather those molecules together in a pool will always create a clear liquid that we call water anywhere in the universe those conditions arise. In other words, at some other quadrant of the universe, we're not going to have those conditions arise and have it produce a giraffe. It just doesn't happen. Or another thing I say, you're not going to put a Thanksgiving turkey in the oven and open it up two hours later to find a Wankel rotary engine. <laughs> you know, physics That's is too very bad. Convenient.
1: Those are delicious.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, yeah, uh, chew on that uh, connection rod. But uh, um, <laughs> the reason why we are able to look out at vast distances in space and look at objects, the information coming from those structures via a light wave or some other kind of a kind of electromagnetic wave. And we're able to analyze that and, and kind of get an idea of what their size is, what their distance is, even what their composition is, what their speed is, what direction they're moving. The only reason why we're able to do that, gentlemen, is because the mathematics that work here are also at work out there. Otherwise, when we tried to work that, we would come up with nonsense you know, would be equivalent to a TV set in between channels. All we would get is this random snow. So the fact that the mathematics here is exactly the same as the mathematics at the outer reaches of the universe that we can see means that we have a very specific set of laws and principles that are highly constrained that produce the same kind of patterns of order everywhere in the universe. Now, take that back to your original question. The human brain, being a subset of that greater universe, is built according to those same laws and principles in a very highly constrained pattern of order. Our technology is built according to those same laws and principles. And that's why our technology works, because it's consistent with the laws and principles of the system that contains the technology. The human brain, because of its convolutions, is able to recognize those patterns of order and to reason with them and reassemble them into different structures that are also consistent with the fundamental set of laws and principles that established the very way that the human brain is constructed and works. When we look at a tree in a yard, we see an orderly object that we identify because the same patterns of order that constructed the tree are the same patterns of order that constructed the brain that is observing the tree. Otherwise, it would look like nonsense uh so can technology and the human brain be merged uh absolutely in a sense it already is when you sit in front of a uh a computer and look at the screen and have your hands on a keyboard and a mouse folks we're already integrated man
1: yeah or are even having this conversation right now
0: exactly can you this is it just the, the, the human language you know is based on the fact that we have common orders of pattern patterns of order and structure in the human brain otherwise we wouldn't be able to have a language
2: we get that is because we're connected to you know the super geometry or the the collective consciousness and our brain acts more like a receiver or antenna then I mean even though it's made of the same stuff
0: yes and the key word is stuff you said it the sentence that you said has been spoken many times but has never been picked apart and analyzed for exactly what it's saying. And what it's saying is that we have form, like you said, stuff. Hmm. And we have, or, or or substance, I mean, that's the stuff. The substance is the stuff. Mm-hmm. The form is the information. Hmm. Now, when we took a take a look at parapsychology, for example, let's take a look at remote viewing. It's a good subject, because not only has it been researched a lot, But we know both the United States government and the Soviet government was heavy at work on this, you know.
1: Yeah, it's well documented.
0: Yes. And for them to chase down so much time and effort over something that was meaningless is ridiculous. Now, both have officially ended those programs, but any thinking person would conclude that they're still playing around with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um So here we have, let's say, uh, you know, I'm in Florida, you know, and you guys are in Canada, and I'm going to try to remote view something that's in a building that's in Calgary. All right. Well, that building comprises information, very specific information about the order and structure of the way it's, it's shaped and even the substance that it's made of, Um, If it's painted yellow, the sun reflects off of it, and the yellow light, the yellow wavelength is reflected off its surface, which has something to do with the information from which that yellow surface is made. It's very specific information. Now, if I view it remotely, there is nothing physical that's connecting me to that building in Calgary. There is no radio wave that is carrying that information. Uh, There is no light beam that is carrying that information directly into my brain. In fact, we don't know of a way that the human brain can actually assimilate and process that body of complex information, even if it was receiving a radio wave or a light beam. You couldn't carry enough information on it about the structure of that building in a way that the human brain could, could receive it and translate it through that medium. Um, uh, these kinds of experiments have been conducted in Faraday cages, which completely block out electromagnetic radiation. And yet, this information enters into our brain And what's very funny is that in the arena of the brain, obviously resides a mechanism by which that information is materialized. Hmm. Now, what is the materialization of that information? We already know the answer to that, guys. We've been studying it for years. It's electrochemical patterns that we can see with the instrumentation and the scanning devices that we already have today in studying the human brain. And we know that different forms of thought have unique electrochemical signatures. So when we get this idea in our mind, our vision about the building in, in Calgary, the body of it materializes. Its physical body becomes the electrochemical pattern in the human brain.
1: It really fascinates me... Oh, go ahead.
0: Now we can begin to start branching, bridging things together in a meaningful way. So, let's wander over to the paranormal world. And somebody sees an apparition. Well, isn't that the materialization of information? Yeah, exactly. And aren't we seeing in front of us a physical materialization sometimes so detailed that current residences in a haunted house can identify from that materialization that's happening in today's space-time coordinate the exact same pattern of information that was recorded with a camera, of a, photo, taken, a photograph taken of a person who lived in that house 100 years ago. And they can line up those two sources of information and say this is the same source because the woman that we're seeing materialize is identical to the one that was taken in the picture 100 years ago. So we're seeing the very same kind of materialization. The apparition is just the same kind of materialized body as the electrochemical pattern that is materializing in the brain from a remote-viewed body of information. Mm
2: -hmm. So you break down a lot of this paranormal activity in your book into like uh, four or five sections and how they would uh, sort of have common correlations to your supergeometry theory.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about the way that I reclassify paranormal
1: phenomena. I'd like to jump back to the remote viewing thing just for a sec, actually.
2: Yeah, sure. I was talking about that, but we'll go back to it with Darren here.
1: Um, so do you think, like, uh, if people seeing ghosts and shit, that kind of is like uh, almost a form of remote viewing that they haven't trained or honed and they're just getting, like, a glimpse of it?
0: No, that's not really what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the ability or the mechanism, let's let's say it that way. The mechanism by which information that is not physical and is not locally recorded and by locally recorded I mean that time Yeah, in other words the information of that hundred year old woman so to speak is not recorded in the local space just like the information that's being picked up about that building in Calgary is not recorded locally in the human brain that's picking it up. So in other words, it's not like a tape player or a video movie that's being played back on demand from a local source of medium. What I'm saying is that the underlying mechanism, which is fundamental to the way that that reality is put together, is the same when you look at an apparition as it is when we're looking at remote viewing it's not that you know one is causing the other it's mm-hmm. that both are caused by the same underlying mechanism mm-hmm. and let me say one thing further is that according to my model the entire universe is put together this way mm-hmm. this is what makes it different You know, everything from atoms to airplanes are all expressions of materialized information. The only difference is this, with most objects in the universe, we are witnessing them in their fully materialized state. In other words, we can't see the process by which they were materialized. It's like what I talk about, standing on the side of a superhighway and seeing cars was by 70 miles an hour, that is the fully realized state of that transportation system. But there's thousands of steps that lead up to that. Everything from people who are laying out the designs of the automobiles to the mines that are mining the iron to the refineries that are smelting the iron and, and forming and, and, and creating steel out of them, chemical plants, the asphalt company that laid the road, we don't see any of that. Mm -hmm. But there are several areas where we do observe in our physical plane the process of materialization occurring in real time. And those areas are quantum physics, parapsychology, and paranormal phenomena. Mm -hmm. So, According to my model, what's going on in there is actually the same process from which the entire universe was assembled.
2: Hmm. So when we get to uh, materialization, that kind of reminds me of uh, UFOs because that's a a big interest of, of mine for sure. But that wasn't necessarily part of your reclassification of the paranormal Uh, events or or mysteries kind of thing Um, but it did also bring up a question where there's more than one paranormal phenomena happening at the same event like UFOs and poltergeists or that type of thing
0: yeah um, well uh, how would I say it if I understand what you're asking, maybe I ought to ask you to rephrase the question.
2: Yeah, it's not very much of a it's not a very good question, but I guess when I read through the classification, it made sense the way you were trying to, um, you know, categorize these so it's a little bit easier to uh, put them correlate them to your super geometric theory. Um, but I was thinking about a lot of times when. Uh, when two or three of those would happen at the same event, right? Yes. So I don't know if you took, did you take that into consideration, or did you, like if UFOs and poltergeist activity happen, uh, how do you explain that, I guess, and the way you reclassified everything? I don't know if I'm making sense yet.
0: Yeah, I understand. Well, first of all, I think what we need to do is to, uh, see if we have a case study. If I'm understanding you correct, please correct me if I'm wrong. We would first need to have a case study that we can look at where poltergeist phenomena, for example, is directly associated with the observation locally in the same spatial relative framework and in the same temporal Dimension of UFO activity. I mean, there may be some case studies like that, Mm -hmm. Um, but let me talk about this in 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 a bit of a broader sense.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure.
0: All right. Paranormal phenomena is a natural phenomena. It's been observed for centuries. I mean, even in the New Testament 2,000 years ago, there's a couple of references to when uh, the disciples saw Jesus in a supernatural way that they thought they saw a ghost. And the context is very clear that they're talking about the same thing that we talk about today when when we talk about seeing a ghost. Very same thing. No technology existed back then. So we're talking about what happens in a haunted house, so to speak, as being a natural phenomenon. The laws and principles underlying that phenomenon has to be integrated into the laws and principles that govern the greater universe in which that paranormal event takes place. So these things, these paranormal events have to tell us something about how the universe is put together. They can't just be happening, and they just happen, and that's it, and that's it, you know? There's more to it than that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree.
0: Okay, now, if that's the case, then there is a way to ultimately discover what those laws and principles are. I believe supergeometric theory lays the groundwork for discovering those and understanding those. Once we understand the principles that govern paranormal phenomena, and this is what I almost like kind of try to scream in the ears of paranormal investigators and Mm -hmm. kind of grab them by the scruff of the shirt and shake them and say, you don't understand the full implications of what you're dealing with. And if you did, you would be much more helpful to the advancement of the knowledge of of humanity. Hmm. Because once we understand those principles, we can begin to build technology based upon them. And can you imagine if we were able to reproduce paranormal phenomena technologically and have it serve a specific purpose other than just being some random natural occurrence that we see, but actually make it do some specific work for us if we were to build a ship, for example, based on those principles, such a ship would do all the different kinds of phenomena that are reported and observed with UFOs. Hmm. So, if UFOs are technically designed and intelligently controlled spacecraft, I argue that their creators have discovered the natural laws behind paranormal phenomena and, and have been able to construct technology based upon them.
1: What are your, uh, what are your thoughts on um, uh, hallucinogens or psychedelics like DMT or ayahuasca or, or even psilocybin and their effects on uh, our ability to, to, I guess, our grasp of reality?
0: We're getting into the uh, (laughs) little bit of an odd uh, area, but uh, even so, I mean, the, the functions of the human brain can be expressed in electromechanical terms or electrochemical terms, and those are bound. We're not talking about electrical functions and then chemical functions. We're talking about electrochemical functions. So if we change the chemistry, we're going to change the way that the machine functions. Hmm. It will not function outside of its parameters, but it will function differently. Any of you guys into souping up uh, cars, motors, that kind of thing?
2: No, not really.
0: All right. All right. <laughs> you have a blower that injects cold air into that carburetor yeah, Yeah. uh, like the gum out commercials but that's a changing of the chemistry even though the machine is still the same
2: so you're saying that these could be a little shortcut to a, a, a different view of super geometry maybe
0: well what you're talking about is altering the operational parameters of the brain. But now let's take it a step further because people will say, well, gee, that's just fantasy and that's just hallucination. And I don't consider that as being just fantasy and just hallucination. You know, I'd like to find somebody to define for me what the word hallucination means. And I know what a psychologist would call it. And then I would ask them, well, doesn't the pattern of information from which those hallucinations are constructed exist somewhere uh, in a physical form? Mm -hmm. Well, then they must be real on some level. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is one of our problems that we run into because psychology has got a certain aspect. And they say, okay, we're going to define ourselves in this particular parameter. We're going to establish a national association which establishes what's normal for our field and what isn't, and the government and the populace is going to accept our determination on what it is, Mm -hmm. and so we are a self-fulfilling and self-defining organization and philosophy. Now, physicists would understand perfectly what I was talking about. But if you start talking about the physicist, about psychology, they're going to say, well, that's not really in our field. We have our own parameters that we're working. And, you know, excuse me, physics, the definition of physics is the study of all things that's physical. So, yes, psychology does fall under the field of physics. It's just the physicists don't allow it to fall under the field of physics. So... We're changing the parameters of the way that the human brain works, but we're not changing the laws and principles mm-hmm. that govern the greater universe that gave rise to that subsystem. So it is still operating within the constraints of how it was constructed, and it is still generating patterns of information that are recognizable and coherent And if those patterns of information lie outside the laws and principles that created the device, the human brain that's conceiving them, they would be literally inconceivable. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? I'm
2: trying. I'm trying to keep up.
0: (laughs) In other words, I mean, you could imagine, you know, uh, a giraffe with pink elephants flying out of its ears. Well you can it. image that in your physical brain, it must be an image that conforms to the laws and principles that govern the greater universe that gave rise to that physical brain. If so that, that, kind of, a,
1: that kind of entangles uh, human imagination into the whole
0: thing. Yeah. What is imagination? Literally, what is it? It is a part of the human brain that generates images. It is the imaging faculty of the human brain from which the word imagination is derived from.
2: Hmm. Or or is it just pulling information from the collective? You know what I mean?
0: Well, it could from the...
2: The collective consciousness, like the field, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, that was... Uh, You know, we talked about intricate order. We talked about uh, supergeometry. We talked about uh, coherent superpositions. Edgar Casey's name for the same thing was Akasha. Yeah, yeah. But Mm -hmm. the human brain has the ability to materialize information that is coherent, that it's receiving from any source.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: So in remote viewing... We see where it can be receiving information super physically. But we also see from all the technology that surrounds us, remember, folks, the computer that's sitting on your desk that you're listening to this show through is a materialization of information. And that information was ordered and assembled and imagined, or let's change the word more accurately, was imaged in the human brain. And then the human being materialized it into physical reality. So information is fundamental to all of reality. That means that there is not really a distinction between information that defines the physical Hmm. in the physical. In other words, information that's materialized in the physical and the information that has yet to be materialized into the physical. The information is the same. It's the same, yeah. It's a different way of looking at things without any jump in intelligence Mm -hmm. and without any additional data. When we start putting things together this way, finally, they begin to start making sense. And all of these conceptual barriers that have separated these various disciplines, psychology, parapsychology, physics, even religion, paranormal phenomena, the supernatural, using this concept, this paradigm introduced in my book, all the barriers between those begin to fall away, and we're able to look at every aspect of reality with the same fundamental sets of principles and begin to understand what's going on.
2: So have you ruffled a lot of feathers in all those uh, communities that you just happened to mention?
4: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Some.
2: Some? <laughs> Some. How, have the, how it, have the skeptics taken you so far?
0: Well, here's what the problem is. Well, I don't so much have the skeptics that they say, well, you know, we're not sure what you're talking about. What I have, you, you have to understand something. This is not just another idea this is not just another theory. Mm -hmm. And most people have had their own beliefs and their own theories have lived very comfortably with them because they seemed no more or less valid than any other concept or theory. Now here comes something uh, along that is very distinct. It is based on logical evidence logical argument and furthermore it's a true scientific theory because it answers all of the relevant questions that are asked to it in a consistent way without having to make exceptions to its own rules to define certain phenomena. Now we have an actual scientific theory Mm. that also makes experimental predictions, some which have already been confirmed now you can use that standard to say this person's idea makes sense this person's idea doesn't this person's idea is absolute nonsense and so what this theory represents for the first time is a very real threat to certain people's beliefs yeah
2: well and in in, in different I, in in even opposite spectrums right like like the paranormal researchers and the physicists, for example.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the people in this field that trade on horse hockey particularly hate what I do because it exposes them for the frauds that they are. Yeah. Um, You know, it's one thing to be able to frame a, you know, a convincing-sounding story. It's another thing to hold it up against a standard and see if it, you know, if it if it holds up to that standard. Hmm. Um, so these are the issues that I run into as far as opposition. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, but, you know, it's just, it's part of the, it's part of the game. And I know I've made some enemies, um, but... You know, I, when you look at what these enemies are and what they do, they're good enemies to have. <laughs> I'm very happy to be defined by who my detractors are.
2: <laughs> so uh, it's been a couple of years now, and, and uh, would you have done anything different since since your book has been published? I mean, like— <laughs> Like, is there anything huh. that you would regret, to, uh, I don't know if that's uh, too personal of a question, but is there something you would have done, or, or are you looking at making, a, you know, a sequel or another book?
0: Well, I am working on that. I've got a couple things in, in the works on that. As far as doing something different, you could imagine working as an independent researcher and putting together this kind of a theory entirely on your own for the yeah. most part. yeah and then you get to talk about it with a lot of very intelligent people because most radio show hosts are more thinking and intelligent people than the rank and file in any particular genre that's why they're in the field because they've got that or they're in their position because they've got that kind of thinking inquisitive kind of an open mindedness mm-hmm. um after almost two years of talking about this with folks like yourself hundreds of times, I've been able to phrase things in a way and really refine things in a way that are better than what they were in the book. Right. And so if I had the book to write together, to write again, I would write it differently.
1: Right. A little more refinement is all then, really.
0: Yeah, you know, you start talking about various things, and 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 of course, I've been exposed to a number of uh, uh, different, um, you know, influences. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. The most significant is the one where I was—I met that fellow named David Roundtree. I don't know whether you folks are familiar with him or not.
2: I've heard you talk about it before on uh, on other shows. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember exactly the. Uh relevance of it
0: he had already done and conducted completely independently of me I didn't know this man from Adam until February of last year Uh. when he was asked by a host a hostess who I had a pre-interview conversation with and very shortly into it she realized that what I was talking about was way over her head (laughs) so she decided to bring in a friend of hers who was going to co-host a show Mm. who was very scientifically trained. And so he first tried to make me look like a bozo. He like, oh, here's another guy who thinks he's got a scientific answer to the paranormal and this and that. But as I started talking about it, he started to realize that I was for real. And when I started talking about some of my predictions that my theory would say, um or it would indicate like that an EVP could be recorded in a vacuum or that an EVP could be recorded with the acoustic diaphragm of the microphone surgically removed. And you could hear his voice kind of trail off a little bit and say, I already conducted that experiment and that's what I found. I already conducted that experiment and that's what I found. And my biggest challenge, and David has become a very close collaborative associate of mine Mm -hmm. because our work is very closely related. The most difficult thing, gentlemen, for me to convey is the absolute jaw-dropping ramifications of what I just said, that because by and large most people are not scientifically trained, they don't understand the incredible impact of coming up with a theory that makes predictions that are then verified through experimentation. I mean, that's the pinnacle of science. This is, these are the things that change the world. This is like when they had that conference last July. Uh, CERN had that conference where they announced the discovery of a particle that seemed to fit the predictive description the God particle? Yeah, that Peter Higgs and others had presented in the 1960s. Their theories predicted the existence of this kind of particle. Peter Higgs was there at the convention, and he openly wept on the floor. Hmm. I mean, these are the things that change the world, mm-hmm. that shatter the world. We are in a new age of paranormal research. It is just that the majority of the paranormal field isn't aware of it and doesn't understand the ramifications of what they're hearing. This model can predict every primary and secondary paranormal event.
2: And you've been out there at hundreds of uh, lectures and radio shows, you know, getting the word out, so...
0: yes. Very rarely, though, am I exposed to someone who has real scientific training. Right. That also is involved in the paranormal because oftentimes that's mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. What I say with, with the predominant thinking and the predominant beliefs in the paranormal field, all the scientists are running to the door like they're in a nightclub on fire. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to get out, you know. I ask people, okay, you got this investigator that does this, and this investigator does this, and where's your scientist? Uh, duh, uh, uh. You know, and I don't mean it to sound condescending. I just mean it to, you know, to state a point uh, that this is still this, this field for the most part is in a very primitive form and just because they're using highly sophisticated electrical or 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 technological equipment doesn't mean they're conducting science or they even know how to conduct science.
2: Yeah. And it's hard to replicate too. I mean, it must be, you know, it's a it's a huge challenge.
0: Yeah, it is. <clears throat> it's not easy. It's not fun. It's not like riding the roller coaster. You know, it's it's doing real science in the paranormal is very, very hard. Yeah, very yeah. hard. <clears throat> Not impossible. Um, now, here's a, a relatively new development that came out of David Rountree's work that has an ex uh, 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 a correspondence. Einstein said, "For a good theory." There must, there, there, every element of that theory must correspond with an observation in physical reality. Uh, so one of my arguments is that paranormal phenomena, when these events occur, the mechanism that is taking place is the exact same mechanism that brought the whole universe into existence, mm. that materialized information. One of the things that that would predict is that we would see the emergence of gravitational effects and gravitational fields. And David Rountree has measured those. In fact, he's actually measures those fluctuations that they're occurring on three axes. In other words, we're not just talking about a fluctuation in the gravitational field of the Earth. We're talking about the emergence of a completely independent gravitational field that projects out in every direction. And my theory predicts that because when you materialize information, that materialization is associated with the bending of space. And that was my prediction that we would see phenomena that would be explained and we could measure it by the fact that when things like EVPs and disembodied voices and apparitions emerge, that we would be able to predict and measure the effects of a fluctuation and the emergence of gravitational fields Hmm. that are bending the space prior to the materialization of the information. And doggone it, everything that we see in a haunted house can be explained by that. Hmm. The inrushing of wind, cold spots, changes of barometric pressure, people reporting the feeling of heaviness, yeah which would, according to my theory, would be literally true because they are experiencing the bending of space, which is creating an additional gravitational field. And we all know what the word heaviness means. It's not an ambiguous term where people have to struggle to kind of find a term that would describe what they're feeling. It comes out of their mouth like lightning. It felt heavy. It felt thick. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, to get to my point, one of the things that occurred – at the beginning of the universe, was the creation of exotic matter. And we also had the creation of normal matter. The quintessential example would be antimatter, which is the exotic matter, and matter, which is the regular matter. Now, when they collide, they destroy themselves. And we understand enough today to know that there was a process that took place in the very early universe where all the exotic matter was destroyed by, being, by coming into collision with normal matter. Normal matter won that battle. The point is, is that the collision of those types of particles produces, one of its products is gamma radiation. It's a highly excited, accelerated form of electromagnetic radiation and in normal space-time what we see today from natural phenomena we see it being created in the Sun we see it coming to us from supernovas and we also see it in high-altitude lightning bolts gamma radiation is produced. Well one of the things that David Roundtree has finally confirmed and he had hints of it before but he set up an experiment at the Shanley Hotel a few months ago and confirmed it that we have the association of gamma bursts with the emergence of paranormal events Hmm. now my theory would infer that when we see the emergence of a paranormal event and if we're actually seeing in real time the same mechanism that brought the universe into being, we should see the creation of exotic particles mm. that would then collide with normal particles and create bursts of gamma radiation. Hmm. This is so far beyond. This is the challenge that I, myself and David Roundtree are in, that we are so far beyond the current state of this field and what that community understands, they don't even get it.
2: It's fascinating.
0: They yeah. don't even see that we have in our hands for the first time in history what paranormal researchers and investigators have been looking for perhaps for centuries. Hmm. We have it in our hands, and they can't—they don't recognize it. Hmm.
2: Well, it's only a matter of time. It'll, it'll start to open up.
0: Mm. So well, do you
2: ha- go ahead.
0: The gamma radiation is the key. And this is something I've yet. David's been so busy the last few months. He's been working on a uh, television production. Uh, I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with him uh, long enough. But he's discovered something that is revolutionary in another way as far as paranormal Investigation and paranormal research, and proving the existence of paranormal phenomena, he has come up with the proof. And here's the thing: that there is no possible mechanism that exists in the normal environment where people are observing these paranormal effects that is able to produce gamma radiation. Huh. The mechanism is not there. So paranormal investigators learn about his equipment and reproduce it, and we're starting to find gamma bursts in all these different paranormal sites, even in vacant buildings. This is something science will not be able to ignore. It is definitely a profound anomaly that will demand... Scientific scrutiny yeah. and explanation. Yeah,
2: it's hard enough that it's hard enough uh, evidence that it'll it'll demand scrutiny. Are you going to talk about that at the paradigm symposium coming up? Do you have any other well, sneak peeks for us?
0: I, well, yeah, I would like to. Now, what I understand is that each presenter is only getting one presentation, and that presentation <laughs> is going to be an hour and fifteen minutes. Uh huh. And I think it's an hour of content and probably 15 minutes of question and answer. Yeah. And we three have been at this for, (laughs) what, an An hour hour and and a half? 35 minutes? Yeah. And we've just basically touched the surface.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: We haven't gone into great depth on any one of these aspects, which we could. Um, So I don't know. Yeah. I'm trying to fit as much in an hour as I can.
2: Yeah, yeah. I guess it must be a hard decision to go with some of this new stuff compared to what's in your book or, uh, yeah, I mean, it must be constantly evolving.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the the biggest idea that I'm going to try to bring forth, because it is the paradigm symposium, is I'm going to explain what this new paradigm of reality is, and I'm going to try to convey that the best I can. Yeah. I'm going to try to, one of the examples I'm going to use is based on this model, we have a very different description for gravity now. Yeah. Um, And what I talk about is like making a meatball. Imagine the meat of the meatball as the raw stuff from which physical reality is materialized from. All right, let's say it's like a planet. That's like a meatball. The fingers, your fingers and palm making the meatball are the curves, the bends of space that surround any material object. And the pressure that you're applying against the meatball is what we call gravity. It's actually something that pushes down and holds smaller objects onto larger ones. It's not a magnetic force at all.
1: You don't think there's any magnetism involved at all?
0: No. Because every effort to try to decipher the substance of gravity from a materialistic force has failed. And it's failed absolutely and it has failed miserably Uh, that concept of of it being an attractive force is based primarily on the 19th century work of Michael Faraday and James Clerk Maxwell Hmm. Maxwell who who deciphered electromagnetism for us what a brilliant brilliant man perhaps the most brilliant physicist of the 19th century
2: underrated for sure
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, He was one of Einstein's heroes, James Clerk Maxwell. Um, But he drew a conventional assumption. Because gravity kind of appeared like it was an attractive force pulling smaller objects down onto larger ones like a magnet, he concluded that it must work the same way that electromagnetism does. And that's just never been proved.
2: So we are going to be able to meet you at the Paradigm Symposium coming up. Um, but before we start wrapping this up, is there anything else that you want to discuss? Anything, any other topics you want to, to plug or talk about?
0: Oh, my. Uh, you know, my website... <laughs> Where you can buy the book, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, you know, see other. You can read about the book, uh, uh, various articles that I've written there, my blog. Uh, there's even a contact email, uh, and of course, where to buy the book that pays the bills, guys. Yeah, yeah, um, that's all available at www. dot spelled V E I L cosmicveil.com and uh, I can only tell you, your listeners that most people who have read the book have reported on some level that they will never look at reality the same way again
2: oh yeah, I can vouch for that it's it's fascinating, and like I said that book's going to be with me for a while I'll be going back and forth from that you know, looking at the, the history of all that good stuff well, the bonus
1: is at Paradigm will have a little more time, so maybe uh, Grimerica can buy you a beer and we can we can have a chat there as well.
0: Well, absolutely. I'm going to be available to uh, you know talk with uh, anybody, uh, uh, you know, and and I'm very excited about talking about my work. So uh, yeah, you know, uh, it might be a Coke instead of a beer for me, but
2: yeah, I don't I don't drink either, so I'll buy I'll buy you a Coke.
0: Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> There you
1: go. Yeah. Okay, well, on on that note, I, I suppose we should uh, wrap it up. We'd like to to thank you again for coming on. And, of course, uh, we'll make sure and link to your website and, every, and everything else in the show notes. Are you on uh, Twitter or Facebook as well?
0: I am on Facebook. It's under my name, uh, which one you post this. You'll have it on the, that page so people can look yeah. at it okay. just look at my name under facebook and and okay. you'll find it great. i don't i don't tweet though
2: Neither do i <laughs> darren does twitter's the shit
0: <laughs> well there you go yeah
2: well thanks again uh thomas it's uh, been great chatting with you maybe we can do it again
0: yeah it'd be great and again thanks for having me on the show i really appreciate it
1: Was our chat with uh, Thomas P. Fusco, um, author of uh, "Beyond the Cosmic Veil"? Um, what a great, great chat that was!
2: Yeah, I I agree with him that we only scratched the surface. Really, like it, it was uh, it was quite fascinating, and I could have gone on for definitely longer.
1: Yeah, I was pleasantly uh, surprised actually. That interview, I wasn't sure how that one was going to go because I thought me and him disagreed on a lot of things, but. In the end, it turned out that we agreed more than, uh, a lot more than I thought we would. So I can't wait to see him at Paradigm and, and pick his brain a little bit more.
2: Yeah, for sure. I, li- I like how his his whole um, theory and, and his subject matter is slightly evolving with the times and with his uh, association with that, that scientist friend of his. And it's, it's definitely different than uh, when I heard him talking about it a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah, so uh, we'll keep an eye on him, of course. I think uh, he's probably working on some new great stuff, and we'll have him on again maybe uh, next year sometime.
2: Yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to pass his I've got a couple people I want to pass his book on to. And, of course,
1: uh, we'd like to big thanks again to Red Pill Junkie for joining us uh, for our intro segment. Uh, This chat went uh, absolutely fantastic from my point of view. It was uh, the least technical gremlins, the least audio gremlins, so...
2: Yeah, technically it was good, and also always, as uh, with RPJ, the content was great too.
1: Yeah, the content's always good with RPJ, but it's good. He's kind of uh, starting to come out of his shell a little bit, so it's good to see RPJ kind of starting to get a little more confident in his podcasting, and and he'll be a regular staple here for uh, hopefully many years to come.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was great. Thanks again to Red Pill Junkie.
1: And, of course, Thomas P. Fusco, and uh, I think that's about it. I don't know if you have anything else. Our, n- our next guest is going to be uh, Richard Serrett next week, so you guys can look forward to
2: that. Yeah, by the time this comes out, you probably won't have time for questions, but uh, after that will be Lauren Coleman. So Yeah, uh, Lauren
1: Coleman, yeah, uh, cryptozoologist, and uh, he's, he's into a little bit of everything, but I think cryptozoology is really his forte so you guys can send us your questions for that. Um, As always, it's uh, facebook.com forward slash Grimerica, um, at at Grimerica on Twitter, um, and you can email us uh, feedback at grimerica.ca, darren at grimerica.com.
2: And mine is graham, G-R-A-H-A-M, at grimerica.com.
1: Okay, guys, I think that about sums it up. So uh, thanks uh, for listening. As always, of course, we'll have links to uh, all of uh, Mr. Fusco's stuff and everything we kind of touched on in this episode we'll have in the show notes, as well as all the music you heard. So um, that should about do it without further
2: (laughs) ado. Thanks, buddy.
1: We'll see you next time. See you, buddy.
3: Follow-ups.
2: Stop doing that! We can all relax.
0: It's almost over. No one follow us. As I told you, it would be absolutely, totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. He's climbing the rope, and he's gaining on us. Inconceivable.
2: Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Inconceivable!